This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. We're days away from beginning a new decade to pick out the key themes of the year ahead. I'm joined by Craig Earlham, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda. Simon French, Chief Economist at Panmure Gordon and Economist Francis Coppola. Simon, Francis Craig, thanks very much indeed for joining me. Francis, first of all, we talked about trade and this being a big thing, obviously, for 2020. That almost goes without saying it's going to be very difficult, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about 11 months. Can it happen? Well, it depends what you want. If what you want is a quick and dirty deal, then you can get one in 11 months. If what you want is something more comprehensive and longer lasting, then no, you can't. So I think what we might say is we will, uh, Boris being Boris, we will end up with a quick and dirty deal, which he will sell as being, I have um, managed to get us a trade deal, which everybody said I couldn't. Um, And then we'll carry on negotiating for years after that on improving it. Simon, you all the Three and a half years ago, you, I, you famously uh, <laughs> raised a great deal of reservation about the skills of civil servants in negotiating trade deals. Do you still hold that view or do you think there's a better team in now? There's a better team in now. We've had three and a half years to try and um, make up for effectively 40 years of not having the capability internally of, uh, of doing trade discussions. But as Francis absolutely correctly identifies, the The devil in the detail of renegotiating your relationship, not just with the European Union, but all the other bilateral and multilateral relationships that we have, is a hugely time-consuming process. And therefore, I suspect that Francis is spot on. We will get some sort of relatively thin free trade agreement, and then the official transition will come to an end, but an unofficial transition during which... The EU and the UK will continue to talk to iron out the detail is most likely, although I would not wholly dismiss the idea that members of the ERG, the European Research Group and the Conservative Party will be given what I would describe as the DUP treatment and will be thrown under the bus if um, Boris Johnson decides to take a more comprehensive stance. But that will entail level playing field commitments on regulatory alignment, a high level of regulatory alignment in order to get equivalence or harmonisation. Those are the kind of things that could happen, but I think it's unlikely at this particular juncture. Craig, are we on our knees supplicants to the EU, or is there a feeling that the EU, as it is without us, needs a UK next to them within which to export? Um, I mean, we're obviously an important relationship for the EU, otherwise they wouldn't be going to such great efforts to effectively keep us on side, uh, regardless of the future relationship. I almost feel like we are one of the star players in in a game of footy where we've almost got two teams competing for the same play. We've got the US and we've got the EU, and both of them kind of want them on their team. Uh, we see ourselves as this grand thing, but uh, and we are we do have our importance, but I, I feel like this is just a, a, almost like a game between the two. I think in terms of any future arrangement with the EU, any future trade deal, I think we're going to be back in a situation like it felt like we were a few years ago where the EU comes to us and says, if you want this done in 11 months, here's some off-the-shelf uh, offers that we have on the table. Here's what we've got with Canada. Here's what we have with Japan, etc., etc. If you want to go down this route, 11 months is doable, but you've got to accept everything that comes with it. Because if you want to start from scratch, I'm no trade expert, but 11 months is just not enough time based on everything we've seen in the past. And we've heard a lot from Boris Johnson and the ERG and others about a a Canada-style agreement uh, is what they want. So if that's the case, then maybe they do just take the Canada off the shelf and they say, 
where can we tweak this uh, to make it work better for our economy over Canada's economy? Uh, and that's where the trade uh, discussions start. And then, like I say, then you could have some, for- some form of arrangement. But again, I think what Simon said is, is, is really uh, accurate as well. I think we could potentially just go from one transition to another and it's just packaged up differently and therefore Boris gets to keep his red line, he gets to keep his bill which he wants to pass as part of the withdrawal agreement and everyone's fooled and we can move on to the next discussions. So Simon, we're talking about, uh, Craig's been alluding to the, the, the length of the period but also the expertise which you're very keen on. I mean, are you absolutely sure about this? Do you think, you know, I, I'm, I'm an outsider to this. I, I think that bureaucrats within the European Union, within the European Commission, have been doing this kind of stuff for years, and we haven't. Over the last three and a half years, the Department of International Trade has built up a a fair amount of capability, but this is still not a battle of equals, even if you had capability equalised. You have, yes, the EU has a significant trade surplus with the UK, but that is equivalent to about 2.2% of their cumulative GDP. For us, our slightly smaller Um, volume of exports is equivalent to about 13% of our GDP. So that gives you an indication of where the the strength of the negotiating position lies. And and that is what has concerned me from, from the outset, is even if you, which the government has, built up its capability for negotiations, this is not a negotiation of of equals. This is why the US has been able to push renegotiations with Canada and Mexico quite easily but has found it harder with China, which is much closer as an economic equal. Uh, bluntly speaking, size matters. Um, impeachment, what influence is that going to have? Simon, are you worried about President Trump's impeachment or are you continuing the narrative that, do you know what, probably won't happen? I don't think impeachment will go full term. Uh, I think it will get blocked in the Senate. What is perhaps more interesting is whether politicians like Donald Trump and there are others around the world are damaged in any material sense by this. What is quite clear is all politicians are not made equal. There are some with fairly interesting backstories who seem to be quite Teflon regarding this sort of series of news. And there are others. And uh, I think on Friday's show, we mentioned uh, Hillary Clinton. There is um, other politicians ac- across the political spectrum who see much more damage in the eyes of the electorate when very similar stories come to the fore. So for that reason, whether in the impeachment process goes full term, I don't think it's very likely, but will it materially affect the election result? I think that's equally unlikely. What, uh, Craig, what, what of the US economy then through 2020? What should we look for? I think uh, what Donald Trump wants from next year is just a steady economy. Yeah, I, I don't, I can't imagine we're looking at a pace above three percent, probably closer to two and a half where we've been much of this year. And I think everyone will kind of take that. I think that just kind of works all round. Uh, Trump wants to go into the election with stock markets at record highs. I think he'll probably get his wish. Uh, and an economy where you've got pretty much maximum employment and two and a half percent growth, he'll claim that the reason it's not higher is because of the Fed and others looking to block and uh, the Democrats uh, looking to impeach him and etc. Having negative impacts uh, on uh, on business interests. But ultimately, I think the economy is just going to go slow and steady. And like I say, given the quite tumultuous year we've had at times so far. I think many people would look at a slow and steady year next year and say, I will take that now because that could potentially now set us on a path for the next growth phase. We're always talking about, you have to have a recession at some point. We're overdue a recession. You never overdue a recession. You just, recessions happen. We accept that they can happen every three years or they can happen every 15 years. It doesn't really matter. So we're not due anything. Um, uh, And I think if we could just have a stable year next year, I think a lot more people feel comforted that we could have a few more years of this growth. Francis, are you looking forward to a stable year next year? (laughs) 
Yeah, I, mean, I actually think that the, the, the trade wars are going to get worse and trade war has quite a negative effect on the American economy. So I actually slightly disagree with Craig on this. I think the US economy is probably going to perform worse than Trump would like and worse than his base is expecting. But I actually don't think that will affect the outcome of the election because I think that he's going to win it anyway simply because... Unless, I mean, I take Simon's point. You mentioned before, I think, um, about a runoff between Trump and Bloomberg might be interesting. But um, that aside, I think that um, it's difficult to see Trump losing, really. So we've touched on the United States. Now, let's talk about Europe. We've got a new team all over the administration of the European Central Bank and the EC and so on. They have to carry forward a number of challenges that were sort of seeded 10 years ago. I'm talking about funny money and all the rest of it. What, will anything change, do you think, Francis? Unless Germany gives up its um, insistence on a, a fiscal surplus and, a, and hanging on like grim death to its trade surplus and other countries in its sphere following suit, I don't think anything significant will change. I think we'll carry on seeing the ECB desperately trying to keep the, the show afloat um, while calling out equally desperately for there to be um, a loosening of the fiscal stance which is going to fall on deaf ears. You've used desperately three times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just wondering what your fellow panellists feel about this. Simon, do you, do, you, do you concur with that? There is a desperation, do you think, at the European Central Bank and so on? Well, I'm slightly more cup half full on this one. So Christine Lagarde is being put in charge of the ECB not for her economic expertise, um, but for her ability in the political sphere to try and influence those issues that Francis is talking about regarding uh, increased fiscal activism, but also some of the structural reforms that move the Eurozone from being an incomplete monetary system to a more complete monetary system. So we're talking about capital markets union, banking union, the type of integration that is necessary if the Eurozone is not going to lurch from one crisis to the next, which it it rather has since, since the financial crisis and never has really achieved escape velocity. I think we could achieve escape velocity with more fiscal stimulus in the short run, but if you're talking about a multi-year, multi-decade sustainable monetary system, you need much, much more than just Germany and other surplus countries dipping their hands into their pockets. Craig, you have to listen to the musings of the ECB every every month and take the headlines every day and all the rest of it. Where, where do you, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a functioning body, obviously, but I, I still, I don't know about you, I still feel there is this unreality about the whole thing, the whole, because there are so many, you know, never mind Brexit and all the rest of it, but so many conflicting economies within the framework that, do you think it has a long-term future? There's a good one for you. Yeah, I mean, without without just echoing everything that's just been said, I feel like the ECB, it's emptied its pockets, it's reached down the back of the sofa, it's found pennies, it's lifted yeah. a chair. It's done all of that, and it, I think it's done everything it can. And to be honest, this last stimulus effort, it sounded like a lot, but let's face it, what difference is it actually going to make? We're probably talking very minor, if at all. We do need to see the fiscal taps being turned on if we're going to see any considerable difference in the euro area. And that has to start with Germany. They have to set the tone. Others can try, but ultimately you feel like hands are tied in many cases. There has to be a, a, a coordinated effort. It's almost in a similar way 
play that we saw when the financial crisis kicked off and there was a coordinated rate cut amongst many central banks. We need to see a kind of a, a similar fiscal uh, idea now materialise in 2020 if we are going to see. Otherwise, we're just going to continue to see uh, lagging growth in the euro area compared to the rest of the world. Obviously, they're also going to be constrained by external factors and the trade war is quite a clear uh, example of that. If we start seeing lower growth and whether you believe the official figures or not for Chinese growth, if we're seeing official figures around the five five 5.5% mark, then that is obviously going to drag on trade with Europe and with uh, and drag on the German economy more so than it already has this year. I do think Germany is going to bounce back a little bit next year and so we won't see quite a softer performance. But without the fiscal taps being turned on, it's just well, it's papering over the cracks. There's, there's nothing going to improve until we start seeing more coordination. Can we just first of all talk about in the last little bit of this, the future for emerging markets uh, at the moment? We haven't heard a great deal of that. We know about India and Modi got a, a landslide. What about places like Africa and so on? Is there an, an, an overseas view of everything, Simon, right now? Lots of this hinges on what is going to take place regarding the dollar. The emerging market investment case is still heavily predicated on whether what has actually happened over the last decade, which is money has largely flowed from west to east and from north to south in the in the hunt for yield and investment opportunities, whether this era of protectionism, which we wrap up as being a trade war, but actually is much bigger than that, whether that will fundamentally hamper uh, emerging markets. Now, the problem is we lump all these emerging markets in together and, and call them a group, but there's a, they're a very, very heterogeneous group of countries. So any investor looking at opportunities needs to look at the specifics of, of country exposure because some will be, depending on their external financing position, be more or less exposed to those kind of dynamics in the, uh, in the dollar market and international capital flows. Francis, um, so back to the UK then. So you're seeing a, a possible advance for sterling. I know it's been up and down over um, the, the, the end of the, the, the landslide election and all the rest of it. But do, do, if, so if, if sterling is gradually going to rise, um, here's a terrible question for you, but why not? Um, what kind of sectors are going to do well now the threat of nationalisation is gone? Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about the UK economy is that... Um, there, there is this kind of myth around, um, oh, if sterling falls, then that'll be really good for exports. And actually, that doesn't tend to happen because we're so integrated into world markets. We've got yeah. extended supply chains and so forth. So you, what you gain on it, gain on the sterling fall, you, you gain on exports, you lose on imports and, and it ends up being a wash. So I don't think this is about a story about sterling at all. I think this is more to do with what's going on domestically, what um, Boris does in terms of um, infra infrastructure spending and um, potentially measures to help small businesses and um, measures to help um, regions. Um, and I think it'll be a story also of what happens in trade negotiations as well, not just with the EU, but with all the other countries with you, whom we are losing trade agreements. You've touched on public spending. Do you think the Tories will ignore their traditions and expand rapidly? Yeah, I do. Mm. I think I think that comes back to this whole point about uh, Boris has, has got into number 10 with a, a landslide on the back of borrowing um, traditional Labour votes, and they're going to expect him to deliver. So the, the, the magic money tree has sort of been transplanted slightly into blue territory, has it? Uh, well, I, the magic money tree had been transplanted into everybody's territory even before we got into the election campaign because they've been making promises of much increased spending in various areas, notably the NHS, but not limited to that, really for some time now. And um, one of the comments that the IFS has been making has been the way in which all parties, including the Tories, have jettisoned the fiscal rule. 
Craig, how has the landscape changed? I mean, I'm not talking politically now because that's how we've, we've done all that. But I mean, in terms of where the, the country's actually going. So we think we have more certainty. We think we're going to have a lot more public spending, some of it magic, some of it, you know, whisked away in those kind of wonderful sums that the, the Treasury dreams up when it's commanded to do. Where are we going? What, what, are, you, what are you going to be looking for this year? In tw- so rather in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think Francis touched on some really good points there. I think we've got to remember that Boris isn't your typical conservative leader. I think he very much cares. When you're talking about Boris's legacy, I don't think he wants to be known as the guy who passed on a fiscal surplus to uh, to the next leader. He wants to be known as the guy who builds a bridge to Northern Ireland or the guy who uh, who, who makes HS2, HS2 happen or something. He wants to be known as some for something grand uh, in, a similar, in a similar way to Donald Trump. And we, we always like to compare uh, him to various leaders, but I do think he is kind of a grand leader. He wants to leave a legacy behind the Boris spikes uh, of his prime ministerial reign. Uh, and so that I do think it is going to be a very different concept. But we have to, we, I think we also, in a way, we have to move away from this idea that uncertainty has evaporated just because we've got a conservative majority government. There's still a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen at the end of 2020. And that's still going to weigh on business investing decisions. Uh, we, we've obviously seen it, uh, recently about businesses saying, well, I know we want to put a points-based system in for immigration, but what exactly is that points-based system? Yeah. How simple is it going to be to follow? That's uncertainty for businesses. So you've got investment decisions in terms of we could be still heading for a WTO Brexit. You've got uncertainty about immigration and whether workers are still going to be able to stay here. Uh, it, there's, there's still a lot of questions to be asked. So I think really the, this idea that we could be that there could be a lot more certainty next year, maybe more than there was in 2019, but maybe 21, 2022, then we can actually start to see the economy take off a bit. Francis, Simon, Craig, thank you very much indeed. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.